Hello and welcome to Voyager, A Theological Journey. I'm Captain Rainway and this is my unruly crew. I'm Will Nicholas. And I'm Lindsay Cullen. Marching meta-narrative is that they're going as fast and as hard as they can, you know, back towards Federation space. No, they're not. They're poking their nose into everything. And that really annoys me, I have to say. See and hear all of our quirks and foibles as we work together as a team. Before we begin today's episode, uh, it's incumbent upon me to correct a grievous error that has occurred in last week's uh, recording uh, and podcast. Uh, It appears that uh, I have uh, mistakenly named uh, Dwight Schultz's character from the A-Team as Face, uh, when in fact he actually plays Mad Murdoch. Uh, For this uh, grievous uh, uh, 80s era, uh, I am uh, profoundly sorry and I make a a great apology to all of our fanbase who have uh, made contact with me, including uh, members of our fanbase from the United States and Brussels who have uh, have, uh, sent in correspondence to um, uh, have me correct this terrible um, transgression of popular culture. Uh, Lindsay, do you want to tell us about our episode for today? Absolutely, Will. So today we're uh, looking at the episode Elogian. Voyager encounters new life forms that have a very unusual attraction to the ship. Meanwhile, Kess's reproductive cycle called the Elogium is mysteriously triggered. She's not prepared for it as she's too young but the elogium occurs only once in an Acampan's short lifespan, and if she wants to have a child, it must be now. I thought there was an awful lot of procreation or talking of procreation going on in this episode, and it happened at so many levels that I thought, you know, they've pulled it together everywhere. <laughs> you couldn't move without procreation being in your face. Yeah, I'd I'd said to uh, Will, maybe to the two of you, that my recollection was I didn't really enjoy this episode. And so then I was um, quite interested to find that I was uh, enjoying it and found quite a lot to think about and comment on as I was taking notes. And I I wondered whether maybe it was that when I originally watched it, I was much younger and uh, the too much procreation was just uh, too much for my science fiction heart to bear because, you know, science fiction nerds are, uh, are uh, often not into procreation. <laughs> That's right. Sex, pheromones, mating rituals, it's all here, just uh, uh, all right out for everyone to see. In fact, even uh, at one stage, the entire ship ends up in a sexual relationship with a floating space organism um only on uh, star trek would you get uh, such an an interesting display of um of such an awkward subject yep and it all happened because they went and poked their nose into something that they could have avoided just had to say it <laughs> <laughs> i don't know can you really uh... resist a, a floating uh cloud of 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 swarming creatures um uh, moving around in a gel like substance probably Especially if I knew nothing about them. (laughs) (laughs) 
And the, the, the captain does say, you know, back off, we don't want to get too close. So, you know, she's at least got that in her mind. But but the uh, floating space protozoa have other ideas and they actually drag Voyager in because they want to have a bit of mating ritual. Well, they think it's their big thing, whatever the big thing was, and I'm not sure who's <laughs> male and female. It reminded me of sperm and ovum actually watching the creatures where you've got this big thing that the little things want to latch onto. But um, yes. it wasn't sure to me who was female and who was male in the space creatures. I did find it very interesting that they that, that the assumption was made that the larger aggressive life form was the male and that the uh, the smaller submissive life form was the female. And I, 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 I found that a, a fascinating uh, 80s, 90s assumption that um, potentially today they, they would not have made. Well, the patriarchy is still well. And, and particularly given what... Uh... Uh, Elizabeth just said, which is that in in our own case with humans, we know that it's actually the 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 female egg uh, that is the much larger uh, thing, and and it's the the little small things that are the male. Yeah, that's sperm. right. Well, that's what it reminded me of anyway. Watching it though, once it started smacking Voyager around with its tail, I was thinking of a sperm whale or a big whale, you know, and how they will attack something like a ship with their tail in that way, but. Um, male and female would do that, I would think. It's interesting that we've already picked up on that sort of gendering of the space creatures and the assumption that the the large male, uh, that the large aggressive one was the male, because I I found on this rewatch that there was all sorts of things that, uh, looking back now, I found really unhelpful and um, things that uh, that that really showed the um, datedness of this. And and I guess just to lead off, one of the ones that, that really irked me was uh, Neelix's jealousy. I see the way he looks at you. I used to look at women that way. I know what it means. Um, and I mean, this has, been a, this has been a regular theme, but I think watching this one, uh, there was a point, I think it was when uh, she said that she needed to to get the doctor to massage her feet so that her tongue would swell, um, and uh, and and Neelix, you know, doesn't like the look of uh, the the sound of that, and then eventually he says, oh, "All right, you can," and it was that sort of sense that he had the power to give permission or not that really brought it all together to me, in a way of of, of thinking about this jealousy as a form of of ownership. And, and that Neelix feels like he, he owns and has control of, of Kez and who she socialises with. And we know from, you know, current day happenings just uh, how bad this is and how often it leads to uh, terrible violence in relationships. Yeah, I think that's true, Lindsay. I think by the end of it, he's kind of redeemed himself in some ways because he's fought some things through. And he also talks about, you know, not just having a son anymore, but having a daughter. But I agree. I think the whole thing starts with with um, his jealousy being quite possessive and that possessiveness is frequently associated with family violence and it wasn't attractive at all. And this is one of the struggles um, I think we have, um, especially when we look at images of God in the Old Testament. I found myself looking up uh, Deuteronomy 4.24 where it says that God is a jealous God. Um, and, um, and, and maybe uh, in some senses the Old Testament uh, in your uh, um, example 
um, Lindsay does give Neelix concern. I mean, the the covering of feet um, and the positions of feet in uh, in the Old Testament <laughs> um, do tend to um, create um, um, a, an assertion that something untoward or, uh, or, or, or or relational is actually going on. Yeah, I mean, even the bit at the end, uh, which I'm sure is meant to be sort of uh, part of the heartwarming reconnection of, of uh, Neelix and Kess, where he says, oh, no, I, I, w- I want a daughter. I've thought about it. I want a daughter, one that looks just like you. And, and again, hearing it through a slightly different lens, it's a little bit creepy, and in case there's any other D and D enthusiasts out there, I, I thought immediately of a character in the Curse of Strad adventure, uh, Isaac Strasny, who um, who goes to a doll maker and makes many many copies of a doll looking exactly like this woman that he believes he's in love with, although. I think she's actually his half sister or something that he remembers from dreams. But the 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 whole idea that you you fetishize someone's appearance so that you want a daughter that has to look just like uh, Kes, I, I don't know. I found it a bit creepy on a rewatch. I don't know that she took it that way because she responds by kissing Neelix, and I think she took it as a compliment. And I'm not sure it was intended that way, but I think you're right, Lindsay. It's dated and it it's coming across in through a different lens that we apply it so many years later, it does look a bit dodgy, I think. Well, and how would she know? Because she's only only uh, one and a half years oh, old. Come <laughs> on, she's doing medical science and she, lots of other things. This is not a stupid woman. That's right. She's leaving Doogie Hauser in her in a dust there. That's uh, right. You know, like a, um, she's, she's, she's studying medicine at uh, one and a half years old. I, I do, though, find that this whole area of... of of sex uh, and attraction um, and procreation and generational change. Um, it, it's, it's in just about every mythology, every religious conversation um, throughout um, the Judeo-Christian texts. There's a lot in there, but also Greek, Greco-Roman theology from Eastern mythologies. You know, there, there is a, there is this constant fascination with what, what is um, the, the relationship between, um, um, different genders um, and different generations when we're actually working through some of these um, these these uh, conversations around sex and sexuality. Oh, I think there's a lot of mythology about lots of things across um, the different generations, thinking of things like women menstruating. We had a long talk about that on the book club I belong to um, with James McGrath's uh, What Did uh, Women Teach Jesus?, and, you know, there's beliefs like menstruating women could curdle milk and that there's all these laws about you're unclean when you're menstruating and you can't, um, you know, you've got to sit on certain chairs which then become unclean and you can't do certain things and then you've got to purify yourself after so many days. There's a lot of kind of strange stuff around women coming of age in many, many cultures. Yeah, coming of age and marriage and, and procreation. So, I mean, you know, all, all of the sort of ancestral narratives in the um, Hebrew scriptures in the Christian Old Testament, they're all about, you know, finding the right mate uh, and then, you know, uh, having problems with um, actually uh, having children and so trying a different mate or using your maidservant or whatever it might be. That They're all about this, um, you know, procreation. And, and we can understand 
understand in that case why that is because it's so clearly linked to the idea of the of the promise of uh, a descendants you know that outnumber the the stars and all this sort of stuff um but uh, it it is fascinating how much of the some, what are sometimes called the patriarchal narratives are actually about the matriarchs and and, and how they get No, birth. they're about the patriarchs. There are matriarchs within the patriarchal narrative because it's all about the patriarchy in terms of, you know, menstruation makes you unclean or if you can't have a child this way, then you get your maidservant and have it that way. And it's always the women's fault in inverted commas if a child doesn't result because they believe that the sperm was what created the child. You, you put the sperm in a woman and a child should result. They had no idea, of course, of ovaries or ovum or anything like that because they couldn't see it. Um, so it's still a male-dominated thing, even if it talks about matriarchs. And I wonder whether that's why there is such a, a significant um, stigma of shame around even talking about these these kinds of issues that 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 there's a level of privacy there's a level of 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 just not talking about it and i and i saw that very clearly um when um in this episode where kez is locked herself in the doctor's office and and she's there kind of not wanting to talk about what was happening and and i i tried to imagine what uh, picard or cisco might have been like outside there that there was this sense in which you know janeway is actually able to connect with kez um, in in a in a in a way that that um that those male captains would not have been able to and offer leadership and support to her, um in a way that that the men just couldn't do, um and um and, and I, I started asking myself the question, what why is that? How have we got to a place where where we we can't have these conversations? Um and um and the the the, the patriarchy's option that it chooses often is just to actually hide it or not talk about it or sweep it under the tar- under the carpet or demonize it uh, i think in the modern world um uh, partly one of the responses is that um we often shy away from or or fence off these conversations because of their gendered impact and so you know women are the ones who uh uh, other than Arnold Schwarzenegger, have to bear the the children, um, and uh, you know so it there's that physical difference, and it's then reflected in the fact that that women um, uh, might leave the workforce and then have trouble getting back into the workforce. And uh, I mean, I was struck by one uh, little comment uh, where um, uh, Neelix and uh, Kess were arguing and he goes, oh, but what about your medical studies? You won't be able to do those if you have a child. And she goes, well, why not? You know, and it's absolutely correct. You know, why not? Why can't you do any of the things that that uh, uh, you, you want to do? And I think partly it's because of the gendered assumption that the woman is going to do most of the caregiving. But why couldn't? Uh, you know, Neelix say, okay, well, I'll look after the, the, the child while you do your medical studies and uh, continue to, to um, chase that dream. Exactly. Or and his first visions of the child are, I'll teach it to fly and fish and hit a footy. ball or whatever it yeah. is, footy. It's all of those <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, Up the mighty yes, blues. All of that thing that goes with, you know, assumed the mythology of men and their sons. You know, Neelix is right into it as from his particular ethnic background. Um, and um, he doesn't occur to him until um, Tuvok says to him, well, you might have a daughter. And he said, what? 
what you know. Well, he even it, he even says I have nothing to offer a daughter. I mean, you know, like uh, that's. I mean, I I I felt that was a, a a huge call for him to make. It was because he's assuming there's really clearly delineated male and female roles, and maybe in his culture there is. I don't know. Um, I don't know enough about Neelix's um status. Um, but it. It really jarred listening to that in this day and age to say, well, you'll have to give up your studies. And I'm immediately bristle up and say, why? Why would she have to give up her studies? Uh, the other thing that really jarred for me, just to take us in a slightly different direction, was that uh, conversation between Neelix and Tuvok. Um, and I, I, I find myself constantly wrestling with this whole uh, description of Vulcans, you know, and it, it seems to me like... Any uh, human reading what is happening um, physiologically with Tuvok and, and his, uh, you know, his, his uh, face and uh, his intonations would say, you are feeling regret and sadness about being away from your children. And yet he, he, he denies it. Um, and, and I just find that whole Vulcan thing... You know, I mean, it's it's a wonderful sort of uh, fiction to play around with the idea that these people don't have uh, uh, emotions, and yet it seems to me that their actions, time and time again, show that they do have what we as humans would call emotions, motivating their 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 actions and the way they interact with. Oh, they definitely people. do, Lindsay. Though, I mean, uh, the the Vulcan physiology that we've received over you know many series of star trek along the way show us very clearly that the reason why the vulcans hold to the strict doctrine of logical colonar is because um underneath this 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 surface control is a wild passionate race of people who only want to tear each other apart and have sex all the time um so there's this sense of uh uh, um, uh, of of the fact that it, it and, and this comes into this conversation around sex, this idea sometimes um, that women um, in some cultures have to have to dress or, or be covered in particular ways, uh, and and even in in our Australian culture that that we we tend to blame women for the 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 lack of control and discipline that men have um, when we're talking about. Um, um, uh, things like sexual assault and and domestic violence often um, rather than actually saying hey what's happened here in this situation we actually go oh well you know if the woman if this this woman who you put here with me didn't hand me the apple then uh, um, then then I wouldn't have actually done the wrong thing and and so there's this this really interesting interplay about blame and control and and emotion and sex that we're actually we continually compress and hide. I don't think women can win, actually, because if you don't dress a certain way, then you're not making enough effort. And if you do dress a certain way, then you deserve that assault that ha that happened to you. And if you don't do this, then you're not good enough. But if you do do it, then you're obviously stepping over a line. And it's really, really, really hard to actually work out in social situations and even in domestic and personal situations, what lines there are and what you, you're meant to do and look like and when you cross one and when you don't cross one. And the borders are shift. They don't stay the same. They're, they're really slippery. I mean, on a survey that was done just very recently that I was reading about where it, I think it was the ABC one that they do, that big one that they survey a lot of people, they asked how many men felt safe walking alone at night and something like 86% 
said they felt safe walking alone at life, where it's something like 30% of women, you know. Um, it's a very different world when you engage with it from a female's perspective. Men don't usually have to worry about their drinks being spiked or being followed or being whistled at or being harassed in all sorts of different ways. No wonder we had a Me Too movement because I don't think I know a single female that hasn't had that sort of stuff happen to them. It's even more fascinating when you actually then flip that over and actually say, okay, well, why do the men feel safe at night time? And if you, if you push that question further, then what you tend to get is because I can fight them, because I can use strength and power and violence to actually overcome them. And so for hegemonic masculine men, they, they are able to actually claim a level of safety because of their ability to be able to, 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 to vanquish their enemies and to fight. And, 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 but, but if you're coming from a different masculine perspective and violence isn't actually your go-to, um, then, then um, you know, like that, that level of safety, that, that narrative doesn't actually cause a level of safety. No. Um, and, and so we seem to be constantly in this gender conversation trapped um, in, a, in our go-to positions of, of dominance and submission, when in fact there's a lot more to being a man than actually being dominant and, and aggressive and violent. And there's so much more to being a woman than actually um, raising children and being submissive and, and allowing the world to tell you who you are. And I, I think that there's, yeah, I, I, really, I really pray for a day when we can all escape these stereotypes that actually force us to, to, to be trapped um in in these behaviors uh when when talking about uh, walking uh late at night i i can't help remembering a mad magazine comic that i saw once and i i i used to love how mad magazine which was usually you know fairly you know, uh weird and wacky pop culture takeoffs and whatever but every now and then they'd have a comic which i thought really hit the mark and this particular one i i, I found quite fun uh, it was this um, this uh, very tall, thin uh, white fellow walking down the street, and there's this um, shorter uh, but very stocky, well-built black fellow uh, walking behind him. And uh, and and the first uh, frame, the the white fellows walking and saying, "Oh, that big black fellow's behind me. I'm a bit worried. I'm going to have to speed up." And then in the next frame, it turns to the black fellow, and he goes. Oh, I don't like this neighbourhood. I wish that tall white fellow would slow down so I could stay close to him. <laughs> I remember that cartoon. I used to read Mad a lot. <laughs> um, just coming back to the, the, the whole gender thing, one of the other uh, lines that, that struck me was uh, Neelix uh, talking about, you know, how Tom Paris was looking at Kess. And I know that look because I've looked at women that way. Um, and... And again, I think it's one of these really unfortunate things that feeds into this myth that men are, you know, only out for one thing or that men uh, are, are not able to control, uh, you know, their sexual drives. And I think in Christian circles, it's been a very big part of the sort of purity culture uh, that has built up this whole way of thinking about men and women and their interactions and, and, and very much... Uh, the idea that that men have this uncontrollable urge, and so uh, as Elizabeth said, all the onus is put on the woman to have to act in in certain ways in order to uh, 
you know, deal with this uncontrollable male urge. And when you're not married in Christian purity culture, that means you have to, you know, wear your um, neck to knee or whatever. So you don't, you know, let the the genie out of the bottle by accidentally uh, walking in front of a male who who then can't control themselves. Uh, And then when you are married, uh, you, you have to make yourself always available. And I just think it's a really terrible uh, you know, set of dynamics that is built into one particular Christian subculture and its way of thinking uh, about uh, sexual morality and, and gender roles. I've read so much tripe come out of evangelical sources about women and about that sort of uncontrolled male thing uh, that women are meant to sort of trip this switch, which turns the male into some slavering beast. And then when you marry them, as you say, um, women are told they should always be available to the man because he can't help himself. He's just got to have these desires fulfilled. And I just think it's a load of tosh. I'm really, some of the stuff I've heard about, like women, if you've got long hair, you can't be in a pulpit. It might trip someone. If you wear a top that shows too much cleavage, whatever that looks like, if it's too tight, if your dress is too short, if your stockings are red, if you've got too much arm showing, it goes on and on and on. And it's just rubbish. And men should just get over themselves. I'm sorry. Present company accepted, of course. Look, absolutely. (laughs) And I find it um, like when I start to hear these, these conversations happen, it's quite offensive um, to me as a man, um, to suggest that, um, that, that there's a switch that can be flicked that I could suddenly just kind of, you know, go into some kind of, uh, you know, fuge state where I would just go, Oh, I'm going to assault this person or attack this person or like the, 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 the reality is that men do have a level of self-control and, and just like women have a level of self-control and the idea that, that that's it instinctually we're just this this raw um uh uncontrollable sex beast doesn't actually yeah like that, that's right um and and i think that there is something something to that that actually that star trek is trying to explore is to actually say um you know how much permission then does it give to men to behave inappropriately if they say that i can't help it it's part of my my makeup uh, uh, Boys will be boys. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. Um, like I, 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 I really fear that it 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 lets men off the hook um, to actually talk about us in this way, but at the same time demeans us um, and and takes away any sense of integrity that we might have. I agree, and I'm not letting any bloke off the hook for that sort of thing. And I've had plenty of arguments with males about this over the last few decades. Because, you know, they say, but what do you expect me to feel if I see a woman in a miniskirt? And I said, I expect you to exercise self-control. That's what I expect you to do. And and just to broaden it out to uh, both genders and and to the human condition more generally, uh, I mean, Kess has an interesting conversation with the doctor around uh, biological urges because she's beginning to question, you know, why do I feel so strongly that I need to take this opportunity to have a child? Is, is that actually right for me? And and the doctor, I think, in trying to, you know, create understanding and empathy says, There is a powerful biological drive, at times almost impossible to resist. Species are driven by these urges in order to survive. But isn't that why we have minds? 
to look beyond biological urges, to consider their consequences. And I mean, I, that that's exactly exactly the thing, isn't it? That um, and I mean, this is often uh, part of uh, discussions of ethics in a uh, evolutionary setting. Is that that people will. Uh, set up the idea that such and such a, a, a drive or a motivation or whatever is uh, based on evolution and, and on the uh, perpetuation of the species or whatever. And and then the assumption is, well, if it's there because of evolution, we can't overcome it. But, you know, even uh, secular um, evolutionary theorists like Richard Dawkins will say, no, that's not the case. That That is exactly why we have minds. We have the ability to choose whether we follow the predilections that, that might be there because of our evolutionary history. Uh, we don't have to. Um, what is doesn't make what ought to be. I think that's true. And I think that's why a lot of young women, a surprising number of young women nowadays are choosing that not to have children because they fear the impact of climate change on our world and they don't want to have a child that will be exposed and subject to those consequences. So they're choosing in, in greater numbers not to do that, which is a really good example of mind over hormone, if you like to put it that way. And they've thought about it and they've decided that they can't be responsible for doing uh, something that they see is um, dooming another human being to certain things. There was certainly that perspective in the early church as well, where, um, you know, the, the, the narrative that comes out of there is that it was better not to have children. Um, and that was partly because they did believe that an apocalypse was on the horizon and that um, that this generation might be the last generation. When we watch shows like The Walking Dead and, uh, and other apocalyptic shows, you kind of say to yourself, well, you know, if the world is coming to an end and society is breaking down, is that a place for children? Um and, and even beyond Apocalypse, when I look at the current situation of the children that are being imprisoned um, and are not cared for by the mm. Australian government because they are, are, are fleeing an apocalypse in their own country and the way that we've treated them, you know, you, you do have to ask yourself the question, um, do, 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 we, do we put children through um, these difficult circumstances? And I think that's one of the questions that Janeway and Chakotay ask in this is, you know, how do we, we're going to need children to get home if it's going to take us 75 years, but is this a place for children? Um, how does that work for us? I thought that was a good question, and I reckon you're right, Will, when Janeway raises that. How do you raise a child on a starship that is singularly ill-equipped to do that? Yes, and again, it was another example of uh, Janeway and Chakotay, uh, you know, really being this very close bond and where there is an openness to to talk and to find wisdom. So, you know, I, I find on this on this uh, watch through, I'm definitely shipping Janeway and, and Chakotay, uh, Janeway and Chakotay all the way. Um, and of course, there's that that delicious uh, line where after it's Chakotay's idea of how the uh, the Voyager ought to pretend to be submissive by uh, rolling over and, and venting plasma to turn blue like the other creatures. Good work, Commander. In the future, if I have any questions about mating behavior, I don't know where to go. You couldn't help thinking that there was more to that uh, that comment than uh, just something about uh, uh, space creatures. I agree, Lindsay, and there was two or three looks that passed between them. Very fleeting, but I thought very significant, you know, and I, th I felt it was being set up for something for them in the future. 
She hasn't given up on Mark, though. I mean, she's still got his picture, you know, and, and uh, I mean, I was trying to work out how long it's been um, because uh, there are a few things that kind of... So the star date for this, or the last episode we watched, is actually the same star date year that um, that the Voyager was, was thrown into the Delta Quadrant by the caretaker. So not more than a year has passed. Um, and, um, and, and, and so I'm, I'm, I was just trying to work out how how long they've been away. And I estimate that it's somewhere between four and six months by just looking at the star dates and other bits of information. I reckon it has to be four months. Why am I saying that? Because the ensign that fronts up at the end and says she's pregnant is pregnant to her husband who is not on Voyager. Yep. So following the Indeed. logic she puts about having just found out about it, I'm opting for the four month rather than the six month yep. date. She doesn't look six months pregnant, no. She does not. Well, unless Qatarians have significantly longer gestational periods and, uh, and, and you know, she's actually going to carry this baby for two or three years or something like that. Um, I, I need to say, just as a bit of uh, trivia, that um, uh, Edson Wildman, her, her first name we learn later is Samantha, um, and this is her first appearance in, in about eight appearances on Voyager, and uh, she's also mentioned by name in a few other episodes where she doesn't appear. Um, but what I, what I didn't know until I was doing my research uh, before uh, today was that uh, Samantha Wildman, the character, is named after uh, a real little girl who uh, died in an accident and whose uh, organs uh, were made available for transplant. Uh, and uh, one of the recipients was the wife uh, of a Voyager episode writer, Jimmy Diggs. Uh, and in gratitude, Jimmy Diggs uh, uh, suggests the name Samantha for this, this character. And um, I, I really liked that uh, little human touch. And, and Jimmy Diggs, uh, as a writer, is an interesting one because um, he was a freelancer. He was not part of the regular writing staff, but um, wrote six episodes for Voyager and one for DS9, which is the most of any freelancer in the history of Star Trek. Uh, and uh, one of, of the episodes that he wrote for Voyager uh, is a, a personal favourite of mine, and I think we'll, uh, we'll also like this one, Concerning Flight, mm. uh, which uh, I'm looking forward to uh, coming up. So Jimmy Diggs named Samantha Wildman after a little girl who, who died and whose organs were uh, given as a donation. Oh, that's nice. The uh, appearance of Samantha Wildman uh, in this episode um, means that um, the theoretical conversation that Janeway and Chakotay were having about children on a starship, uh, Mars ain't the place to raise your kids, in fact it's cold as hell, to um, quote Elton John, um, the, is, is um, this kind of, uh, this, this theoretical question actually becomes a real question. Now they actually are going to have uh, a birth and a child on the starship, um, and they they have to work out um, how to deal with that. And I and I, I think that's one of the things that's really fascinating for me in terms of procreation is that I remember um, uh, uh, in my own um, relationship before children came along, I wondered what it would be what it, what it would be like. Did I have the capability? Um, was the, the life of an itinerant minister, an appropriate life to drag children around through. Um, the reality is that once they're here, they're here. Um, you know, it's you, you then have to work out how, not, not if, but how you're going to actually 
um, provide all the needs that they have uh, and to work through the, the pitfalls and struggles um, that they'll, they'll confront um, in, in whatever life they actually appear in. And I think if we waited until we felt completely confident we'd be the best parents ever, um, we'd probably none of us would have children because there's always that self-doubt and that worry that you're, you're not going to be able to be the best parent or you're not going to be able to provide everything that needs to be provided. And I think that's a fairly natural kind of feeling. And in fact, it's exactly what uh, Kess uh, is struggling with. And at one stage, she says to the doctor, I'm not sure I'm finished growing. How could I help a child to grow? Um, and I immediately thought, well, do you ever finish growing? Like, uh, and, you know, I, at each stage of the parent parental journey, I think there's more growth to be done. And you always feel uh, like you, you don't know enough and you, you haven't got enough resource and whatever. It's a, it's a constant struggle to, um, uh, to keep treading water, as it were. You, you never finish growing. No, you don't. And I guess Kessa's situation in some ways is like a teenage pregnancy. And um, you're really a child yourself, giving birth to a child with teenage pregnancies. And it's, it's a very difficult situation, I think. Um, for young mothers. And I think one of the things that I appreciated about this episode, although they could have leaned into it even more, was actually through Neelix primarily, but then also through Kess, actually exploring the fact that um, it's not always an easy decision and it's not always something that both partners immediately feel the same way about. Um, And... uh, you know, I, I have a little bit of that in my own personal story because uh, Suzanne and I, um, uh, you know, uh, failed to be able to uh, have uh, children for many years uh, as a married couple. And, and we'd, in fact, gotten to the stage of, of saying, well, OK, maybe that's uh, God's uh, calling for us. And and speaking personally, I I quite leaned into that, that, you know, there was a sense of freedom of being able to be accessible to other people in ministry and and particularly actually uh, to young people and teenagers and having them drop by at all times and, you know, being able to drop everything and go out with a bunch of them uh, and that kind of stuff. And and so uh, then when uh, Suzanne uh, felt that she wanted to once again explore whether we could use medical means to uh, have have a, a child. I remember that 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 struggle of ambiguity: Do I want this? Don't I want this? Um, you know, and and that it wasn't just a, a straightforward "oh yes, of course" sort of thing. Um, and none of that, of course, then touches the fact that that when we did have a daughter, that you know, that's the the most wonderful thing that's happened in my life, and I can't imagine my life without. Uh, my daughter and 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 you know cherish her so much, but the original fact was that you know there there was wrestling there. There was wrestling there for both of us, and and medical means of having birth uh, is expensive, um, not just for the person but for the society, and and we had to kind of weigh that up too. You know, is this an ethical uh, use of resources for for us? Uh, in in a situation in the West where we can to uh, chase up the possibility of procreation. Um, yeah, so I, I, I liked that there was an exploration of those different uh, ups and downs in that kind of decision. Yeah, I agree, Lindsay. I thought that was good because it, I don't think having a child should ever be just a random 
quick decision, really. I mean, you may find yourself accidentally pregnant, of course, and that's a different ball game. But in terms of looking at exploring, do I want to have a child and what would it mean? I guess I feel that most parents ought to go through something of that process before you just go and say, right, let's get pregnant. That was one of the things I really liked about this episode was that um, there was so much uh, ritual around uh, the Ocompan procreation cycle. Like there was, there was uh, the appearance of the, uh, the, 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 the uh, resin on the hands and the, 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 the nodule on the back. Um, there was the massaging of the feet for the tongue swelling. So it was not just a, uh, a something for, for two people just to do by themselves and no one would know about it. But, but in a compen society, there seems to be that, that, that the entire village is, is, is utterly aware of the fact that, that um, this is taking place uh, and that, um, that, that procreation is on its way. And so that creates, I guess, a, it, within a compen society, I imagine creates a huge level of support and structure um, for people entering into this. I found myself at one stage when Neelix said, oh, very cagely, and he's already backing out of the room, uh, give, me a, give me some time to think about this. Um, and he, he's, he's backing away and he's, he's, he's looking very nervous, but, but he's, he's right to actually say, this is a new and confronting experience. I need to take some time to confer with wise counsel, to reflect um, on what this means for me, and, and to come back not as an impulsive decision, but actually as a well-thought-through process. I agree, Will. I think that was sensible, because if you just automatically say yes, and then you repent at leisure, it's not going to be useful either. No. It's much better to think it before the event. So I agree. I, I was going to say, you know, we, we um, and it's often remarked upon that uh, we have to do training to get a license to drive a car or to do many other things in life. But there's no, um, you know, necessity to train to be a parent. Um, and, and some parents choose to uh, enter into uh, um uh, prenatal classes which might help to equip them with some of the things they'll need to do but um, the assumption is if you're if you're biologically able to have a, a child well then you can have a child. I think that's right and when you look at the amount of children who are end up neglected or abused it's probably not sensible and being part of a village might have been preventative in that sense because if the village is raising the child and like the Ocompan society if everyone is involved with the fact it's going to happen and involved with what then um, ensures with the child's birth and upbringing, I think it's a very different environment than if you have a child through hormonal impulse and you're suddenly on your own with it. You know, it's um, we don't have a society necessarily in Western culture that supports those concepts and supports new mothers and new ideas in the same way some other societies do. And we come back to sex um, and relationships, you know, like there's this sense in which it's all so private and so separate. So cloak and dagger, we've got that scene where, um, you know, um, Chakotay opens the, the, um, the, the lift door and he catches two crew members fraternizing with each other and, 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 and he doesn't know what to do. He, and he raises it with the captain as an issue. And, 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 and like, there is that sense in which, um, these are the world's worst kept secrets. Um, when, 
when people are entering into relationships, often everybody around them knows. Um, everybody around them is aware of what's going on, and yet nobody speaks about it. It becomes a secret. And so I guess one of the greatest um, uh, relational exercises and opportunities of our lives is actually something we actually are taught to to not speak about and to keep secret, which just seems to be a, a dramatic paradox to me. Hmm. And one of the interesting things uh, we've touched on this uh, about Voyager is that it allows you to explore those relationships in a quite a different setting. And and uh, I, I was struck, um, I think it was probably when Janeway was uh, looking at the picture of her fiancé, Mark, was it, um, that the other thing that it allows you to think about is the ending of relationships uh, and particularly endings where you're not sure. You know, at, at what point, if Voyager is going for years and years, does Janeway actually say, you know what, I, I think that relationship has ended. I don't know what's happening for Mark, but I think I need to seek, you know, a relationship elsewhere um, after 20 years or whatever it might be. And and I was reminded of a, a particular instance in my own ministry experience uh, where I was in a, a congregation and there was a family uh, and the, the father, the partner, of uh, one of the people in the congregation uh, had gone missing and and just disappeared. Um, and uh, the assumption was that uh, he had probably uh, committed suicide, uh, maybe, you know, drowned himself in, in one of the uh, number of um, little lakes on the property or something like that. But there was no body and there was no certainty. Um, and so uh, after a period of time, uh, the the family had gone to my predecessor and said, look, we need to have some kind of ritual to recognise that this person is gone, but a funeral doesn't seem quite right because we, we're not sure uh, whether he's in fact dead or not. And so they, they, they had a special ritual uh, which um, uh, was not a funeral but was a recognition that this loss uh, seemed to have taken place. And while there was some... Uh, openness to what the future might hold. It 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 was a, a closing of kinds, and then they came to me some years later, and after there had been a, a coroner's report which uh, had come down with a, a verdict saying that this person had probably killed themselves, and they said, "Look, we need something else. We now need some kind of closure." And so we did uh, have a funeral service, but without a body. Um, and uh, I was thinking of that kind of um, uh, situation uh, where you, you don't quite know. There's not the finality and the, yes, this is finished. It's, it's actually, a, I think it's finished and I need to move on with my life, but I'm, I'm not really quite sure. And I was thinking about uh, that in the context of Janeway or others in the crew. I thought the similar kind of thing, Lindsay, though I was thinking of Mark, um, when she was looking at his picture back wherever he is on the space station or on Earth and being told at some point that there's some sort of equivalent to a coroner's inquest and they declare that Voyager has been nixed or something's happened to it and that the crew were then declared, you know, dead, what he would do, you know, because there's quite likely to be something, I'm guessing, of that nature come up after so many years or months or whatever 
where they do declare it's lost, probably dead crew. And what do those people left on Earth or space stations then do to get on with their lives? And we don't see a good picture of that till much later on in the series when they are um, when when that becomes clear that that's occurring. Um, and uh, look, I, I I'm haunted by um, the last conversation that Mark and and um, Janeway had together. Um, you know, she's asking him to um, take the the dog home because it's having puppies, um, and and he's reluctantly agreeing to do that. Obviously, not a dog person. So now he's he's kind of. Um, stuck with this grief, not sure what's going to happen, and he's got a dog with puppies. Um, I, 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 I really feel for Mark. I, I, in, and his current situation. Yeah, I think that that's how I was thinking. Because I was thinking more of when you lose someone. In the case, like Lindsay said, you lose someone, and you don't know what's happened. And where the Voyager people know perfectly well what's happened to them, the people they've left behind do not. And so there's processes legally, I assume, that, you know, goes through to declare them either they're alive or dead or lost or whatever. And um, for those people left, they may have some marking that says it's time now to move on and do something different and get on with your life in terms of, you know, you find another partner or you you let go of that memory or that hope or whatever it is you have and, um you get an awfully large shock when I assume eventually they turn up. And uh, that, that, I mean, I'm thrown to the scene in um, Castaway with um, um, uh, Tom Hanks um, and he returns home after years of being on this, um, this island and surviving and, and all his energy is focused on surviving and, um, and uh, looking after Wilson. Um, And um, so he's got, busyness to occupy him so he doesn't actually um feel the grief in the same way um as as those who have got nothing to occupy um and um and when he arrives back his wife is remarried um and, yeah. and so there's a, there's, a, there's a massive lack of closure for both of them in that well i felt um the musical tommy has a similar thing where she's told that her pilot husband's been shot down but then and she finds a new partner and then, of course, he turns up and, and he's killed, if you know the musical Tommy, which is why the child is then deaf, dumb and blind in the, in the musical. But it's the same thing there. She gets the shock of her life. She was told he was dead. And there he is. He's back again, large as life. What do you do with him? Hopefully not kill him, as they <laughs> did with Tommy, but anyway. So on another topic... Um... I don't know what you thought, but I was a, a, a bit uh, concerned by the way Balana was being characterised in this episode. This is an aggressive life form, Captain. He's only going to respond to an aggressive stance from us. Her responses seemed to be very much the kind of Klingon uh, forward uh, type responses we were getting early on uh, before she seems to mature and, and grow into her role. It's just, yeah, let's shoot them. <laughs> you know, they're attacking us. Take them out, you know. Well, I guess if <laughs> you're under up. attack, that's a reasonable kind of response, even if you're not a Klingon, because I think Mr... Tuvok is agreeing with her by the end that this seems to be a reasonable thing until Chakotay says let's act passive um, and submissive and maybe the thing will go away. So I, I I just thought, well, maybe given it keeps thumping them with its tail and sending in Electro, whatever it was, that was a reasonable way to say, well, you know, maybe we should get rid of it. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes me think I, I should get a gun so that, you know, when I'm walking through the Australian bush, if I see any threatening kangaroos or lizards or snakes or whatever, I can, you know, shoot first and ask questions later. I don't, yeah, it's not quite that bad, Lindsay. I mean, it was attacking them and it was damaging the ship and causing all sorts of, of havoc and mayhem. So um, I can see where she might be coming from. But Janeway seems, I mean, I'm surprised Janeway's not vegan, actually, because she has this real empathy <laughs> for all life forms, even if they're just giant space protozoa. I, uh, I think perhaps maybe um, in the case of Balano, the doctor may have put... Um, more than half of the Klingon DNA back in, um, and uh, from our previous episode, she she yeah. she d- did seem to be um, uh, protesting too much, um, and, and maybe the writers were going, "Oh, look, Balana's not Klingon enough." In this episode, we need to make sure she she uh, she says at least four Klingon things so that we can remember that it's not just ridges on her forehead. Yes. Although she's never said today is a good day to die. So, I mean, you know, how can you be a real Not, not yet, this but I think true. she does have that wrestle with herself later on. Well, she kind of did that in the episode where the Klingon half died in a sense. But So I thought maybe she's resolved that for the moment um, in her DNA or her being or whatever. Yep. At least she's not the weapons officer. She's down engineering. She has, she has to ask someone else to fire the phasers if she was That's actually. Right. Sitting. I imagine. I mean, that was Worf's job on um, on the Enterprise. I'm surprised there weren't more times where Worf just said, "Fire! Bang! 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 Bang!" You know. Like... <laughs> but it's an interesting question: what you can do when you're under attack. You know, how how long do you wait before you respond, or how long do you take it very passively? And while you work out different strategies to try and respond in a way that isn't um, as violent as what you're encountering and not knowing whether or not your reaction, if it's not a violent one, will actually have an effect. So it does raise some questions, I think, around that. If you're under attack, what do you do? And let's be clear, the assumed male large space creature was acting under its impulsive, instinctive urges. It couldn't help itself of what it was doing to the Voyager. It, it had no choice in the situation. Um, well, it probably didn't. I mean, if the Voyager's... Well, if Voyager had just dressed a bit more modestly, going to go around spreading pheromones and electromagnetic signals, then it deserves everything it gets, really. I mean, well, it's... exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We have a very different understanding, even when we're thinking about animals, um, in relation to that. One of the things that I had to teach my my male dog not to do was actually to uh, to gyrate on people's legs when they came into the house. Um, and, uh, you know, would kind of go, oh, he can't help it. And I'm going, yes, but I don't particularly want him to be, to be doing that. So I, you know, I did some reading and I worked out how I could dissuade him without punishing or, or, or applying pain to him and, um, and, and have actually been able to, to, to rid him of that habit. Um, and, um, I mean, it's, and for him, it's not even about sex. I mean, he was castrated at like, um, what, what desexed at about, um, uh, well, less than a year old. Like so, so there's no procreative drive there. Um, and so, this is his hello greeting. Um, and um, we we've taught him other ways to actually greet people with a nice hello. Um, yes, but is he looking at them with lust in his mind? <laughs> oh dear, we're back to the biblical sort of thing with all these assumptions about what males do and what what women do, and mm. it's time we. Broke some of those stereotypes, I think. Yep. 
Sounds good. Well, look, I don't want to spend a long time on it, but I do feel the need to at least mention, you know, that the uh, the the doctor's personhood, which has been a regular topic for us, gets questioned yet yes. again, you know, and Neelix bursts into the bridge saying to the captain, you know, is it right for someone who's just a hologram to throw me out of sick bay? I would say absolutely right, because he was being such a pest. I mean, no doctor, holographic or flesh and blood or, you know, whatever, would put up with that kind of behaviour that Neelix is demonstrating. And um, all credit to the actor, I think, who in this episode managed to um, convey that he was a stonkingly huge serial pest in a way that he has not yet done in in such elegance, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I think we did see uh, um, a a, a really good portrayal of Neelix. We, We kind of, Neelix... Have has mellowed significantly from the um, the the irritating um, scavenger that we first met in the first episode, um, and uh, it was nice to see some of that um, that that uh, that difference um, appearing again in this episode. He was still irritating, particularly when he was annoying the doctor, and I was actually found myself feeling quite outraged on the doctor's behalf because when he said he's just a holograph. I thought, well, Kess wouldn't see him that way. And it becomes clear later in the episode, she doesn't see him in that way. And I think the Doctor was well within his rights to throw Neelix out. He was being dreadful. Although he did seem particularly belligerent, I have to say. I mean, I absolutely agree that the Doctor had had the right to exclude Neelix and, and uh, that, that Neelix was being insufferable. But the, the Doctor seemed more than usually belligerent about it. And I, I, I must admit, um, I found myself... Um, wondering whether that was actually also a, a part of the um, the what the space creatures was creating. I, I couldn't remember the whole of the episode, and I, and I was thinking, uh, does their presence actually heighten lots of emotions in in the crew? A lots of people acting out of character, but I don't think it was that. Uh, it it was just the Doctor being belligerent. But the Doctor's bedside manner is always atrocious as a rule. So I thought it, it was just slightly turned up a bit because Neelix was being such a serial pest. Unless you're a gel pack. He was very nice to the gel pack. Um, uh, oh, that's right. That's now right. there's a gel pack, <laughs> I right. need to get your permission. Um, but I, I, I felt that there was a, quite a lead up to the Doctor escalating to the point where he did belligerently yeah. throw him out. And, and it comes back to that question we asked before, um, you know, at what point when we're under attack, do we actually escalate a situation? Um, and how do we escalate the situation? And so, so in this case, we've got, you know, um, Neelix being his usual irritating self, the doctor saying, no, no, this is not appropriate. Neelix upping the ante and then the doctor upping it further. And then Neelix going to the captain. And so we've actually got this, this escalation of, 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 um, of, of brinkmanship in one sense, um, um, coming to a point where the captain actually puts Neelix back in his place um, uh, and says, no, you know, this this guy's the doctor, so you have to listen. And I think the fact that it's Kess too might have elevated a bit. Not that the doctor is romantically attached to Kess, I don't think. It's just he um, has concern and interest and friendship with Kess because of her role as his student, and they've obviously gotten to know each other much better and she has a high regard for him, so... I was thinking maybe his concern over her illness heightened his responses to Neelix being such 
an idiot. He certainly seemed to be mm. very excited about massaging her feet, I, I did note. So. <laughs> oh, maybe. I just thought he felt a bit privileged to be asked because he's in the place of her father and she explains that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in some ways I thought the doctor, as, a, as he, in his holographic self, thought that was a privilege that she had trusted him to do that particular action for her. Well, and it's interesting in the light of uh, last week's episode where um, uh, in, in one of the uh, doctor's sort of uh, visions, Kess is, is his wife, that it's almost like he's trying out different relationships uh, with this person that he, he trusts and feels close to, uh, you know, friendship. Um, being a, a, a sexual partner, um, being a father figure. You know, it's almost like as he develops his personhood, he's, he's trying out different aspects of uh, being a person with this one uh, individual that he has a connection with. Mm, that makes sense. I am looking forward to one of my favourite episodes with the Doctor in the distant future where he actually generates a holographic family just for himself to be able to say what does it feel like to actually be a part of a family unit. And I thought that was, a, that, that was one of my favourite episodes, looking forward to that in the future. Yes, it reminds me a lot of, of a, a Next Generation episode um, where um, uh, Picard gets a, a, a family uh, in a particular timeline i think it's called inner light uh, and he plays a, a, a flute and uh, yeah it's interesting to see these characters who uh, don't necessarily have those sorts of familial uh, connections in in their native um, uh, being to you know explore what that might look like and uh, what what uh, life could be like if it was a bit different so yeah i i, I enjoy those episodes well, I can't comment having not seen any of them, so I'll just look forward to those when those. they come. <laughs> well, that's um, there's a lot to look forward to, um, and uh, I think there's been a, a, a fantastic episode about sex today, um, and uh, I'll be writing sex into the show notes so that everybody will see that word and go, oh, I've got to listen today. Um, uh, sex on the Voyager cruise. Um, you know, I think um, it's going to be a, a fascinating... It's the love boat. <laughs> Good, oh good, good uh, Twitter headline for this week's uh, release. Um, oh no, don't! That's really scraping <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. The love boat. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that's probably all we've got. I, I did want to um, uh, give a big shout out to um, uh, to our listeners, and in particular, um, I haven't had a chance to actually go through the the listing today. But I noticed this morning when I logged on that we have a new Patreon follower. Um, which would actually bring our Patreon following up to two now. Uh, so I'll have to go and have a look and, uh, and find out um, more about what's happening there. Um, and, and once again, as I started this episode, I just wanted to, uh, to, to, to give my sincere apology for um, messing up a, a, an 80s pop culture reference. Uh, How could you, Bill? I know, I, I hang my head in shame. Uh, will, I, will I ever be able to show my face uh, ever again uh, around the place? No. <laughs> Well, so if we're signing off then, uh, I'm Captain Stuby. Uh, sorry, Lindsay Cullen. Well, I must be Captain Rainway. And I'm uh, Mad Murdoch Will, uh, and I'll catch up with you next time on Voyager, uh, Theological Voyage. <laughs> <laughs>